When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Normally, each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. But today, instead of doing that, we're going to answer your questions. We've been asking listeners to send in questions about American politics or anything else they want us to answer. And with me to try and answer a selection of those questions are Idris Kaloon, who this week is coming to us from Chicago, Charlotte Howard in her usual perch in New York, and John Fasman somewhere upstate in New York, but with his camera off, so we can't quite verify that. Idris, how are you doing and what's going on in Chicago? I was passing through. I was in Wisconsin for a few days doing some reporting and I'm on my way to San Francisco. So Chicago is the right terminus to get from one place to the other. And Charlotte, what about you? What's up in New York? I'm looking forward to having John Fasman back on. That's the main exciting thing happening in this part of America. Fasman, how are your levels of excitement? I can't see your expression at the moment, so you're going to have to convey your enthusiasm through your, your, the tone of your voice. My levels of excitement are dangerously high. I am positively vibrating. I'm very happy to be back. Okay, good. Well, we have a whole bunch of questions to get through. Some of them were emailed in, as I said already, and some listeners sent voice memos. The first of those comes from Sophie. Hi, everyone. My name is Sophie, and I live in Boise, Idaho. Will there ever be a time where the U.S. is ready for a female president? It's clear we're not lacking in women who are capable of holding the position, but for some reason, it seems it can't be done. Idris, I'm going to direct this one initially to you. I mean, this is a debate that bubbled up after Hillary Clinton lost the presidential election in 2016, but it hasn't gone away. What's your take? Well, you have an octogenarian in the White House who expects to be there for another six years and a female vice president. So you might end up with a a woman as president, sort of by accident, uh, not to be too morbid about it. I think going back to Hillary, you know, she won the popular vote. She obviously lost the Electoral College by a pretty fluky margin. So I don't think that it's so inconceivable that America will elect a female president. I, I think that it's within the realm of possibility. And we were fairly close to it. And I think we will be soon. I suppose it's also striking that a lot of other big Western democracies, you know, think of France, Brazil, haven't had female presidents either. Charlotte, what's your take? Are you, like Idris, somewhat optimistic on this? I am optimistic when you look at the women who are elected to Congress. But I also think we shouldn't pretend like it's smooth sailing. I mean, if you look at Hillary Clinton's campaign, there's this tension between needing to seem qualified, so being confident in your own abilities, being tough, and then the need to be likable. And for women, those two things don't always go hand in hand. And if I think back to the 2008 campaign, one of the times when Hillary Clinton was seen to be 
most likable was when she teared up in New Hampshire, which was just such an interesting moment culturally, both culturally in her career, but also in voters' response to her showing that vulnerability. And I think also if you look back at the 2016 campaign, you had Trump as a candidate saying that Hillary Clinton was playing the woman card and saying things like, I just don't think she has a presidential look and commenting on how she looked from behind. And, you know, he won that year. So I share Adrice's optimism while also having a bit of dismay at the reaction to the women candidates we've had to date. And I don't think the reaction to Hillary was just because she's a woman. I want to clarify that. But I think it's hard to argue with the fact that she faced a different set of lenses through which she was viewed than a male candidate would have. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, let's move on to the next question. My name is Patrick and I'm from Lagos, Nigeria. My question is, why do US states have a junior senator and a senior senator? So Patrick from Lagos wants to know why each state has both a junior and a senior senator. We also had some questions from Michael and from Nick about why the number of representatives in Congress hasn't increased as the US population has increased. So let's bundle those questions about representation together and throw them to Mr. Fasman. So the first question is a lot easier to answer than the second. States have a junior and senior senator because no state has both senators up for election at the same time, barring some sort of special circumstance, as we saw in Georgia in early 2021. They're just elected at different times. So by definition, one is junior, one is senior. They're just denotations of who's been serving longer. The senior senator has no more power than the junior senator, except to the extent that, you know, seniority in the Senate comes with choice of committee assignments, desks, that kind of thing. The second question, why hasn't the House size increased, is really a great question. So there are 435 members of the House of Representatives. That's the same number it's had since 1910. Before then, the House size had gone up regularly since the first Congress. With every census, the House size tended to increase. The first Congress, there were just 65 House members. And to explain what that means in terms of voters' representation, in that first Congress, each member represented a little over 57,000 people. Congress now has one for about every 763,000 people, and that's more by far than any other advanced democracy. And if the House were to revert to its original ratio, it would have 5,800 members. So now as for the why, House numbers increased with the census, as you would expect, right? You get more people, you have more representatives. In 1920, however, the census showed for the first time ever that more people lived in cities. Rural representatives feared losing power, Republicans, who then held both houses of Congress and the presidency, worried about losing power to Democrats, who tended to do well in in crowded northern cities. And so they were gridlocked. They couldn't figure out a way to reapportion it. And what they settled on was in 1928, after Herbert Hoover was elected, he sort of rode herd on Congress, and they passed the 1928 Apportionment Act, which capped the number at 435. It's been there ever since, even as the U.S. population has tripled. So there have been various discussions of how to fix this. I don't think any one of them is going to go anywhere anytime soon. But the House probably should be bigger than 435 members, although a 5,800-member House is is too ghastly to contemplate. All right. We also had a few questions about third parties and why they don't seem to do so well. Hi, I'm Chris, a farmer from the Gold Coast, Queensland, Australia. I love listening to the podcast while I'm out working on the tractor. I'd like to know, what do you think of the theory that the polarization of American politics is intensified by the way the electoral system favors having two dominant parties 
through first-past-the-post voting and ballot access regulations? Would American politics benefit from reforms that encourage a more diverse field of parties and candidates? So very nice to hear from Chris in Australia. He's an avocado farmer. So Fasman, I think you're conflicted out of answering that one, given your well-known loathing for the avocado pair. <laughs> Fair enough. Also, Arthur wanted to know if we think a viable third party could ever emerge. Charlotte, what's your take on that? Well, it's a really great question because I think anyone looking at America's electoral system or from outside or even within it would say that there are things that seem sort of unnatural about the two-party system. So there's not really a, an obvious superficial reason why a pro-business Republican would align with a populist Republican, as an example. One believes in free trade and low regulation, and then the other believes in protectionism and sometimes punishing big companies like Google and Apple. And then if you look at polling as well, there are a growing share of Americans who are dissatisfied with both political parties. So last summer, Pew released a survey that found that 27% of voters had an unfavorable opinion of both parties. That's up from 6% in 1994. So that's a really striking increase, more than quadruple the share of Americans now don't like the parties. But there are a few reasons why you have struggled, why America has struggled to, to see a really viable third-party candidate. There have been many attempts. Andrew Yang, most recently with a group of Democrats and Republicans, announced something called the Forward Party last summer. In states, you have uh, the Moderate Party in New Jersey, led by former Republicans. But these don't really dominate much discussion, much political discussion. And there are structural reasons within America's electoral system why different factions are incentivized to join together within big political parties. So you have these big umbrellas that unite different coalitions. That's not to say that you don't have an impact potentially as a third-party candidate. So most famously, probably Ralph Nader's 100,000 votes in Florida helped George W. Bush win the 2000 election and ensure Al Gore's defeat. Ross Perot got almost 19% of the vote in 1992, which is quite a big share, and that helped Bill Clinton win. And then lastly, you have some parties that have existed to help shape the agenda within a party. So in modern times, you see that in New York with New York Democratic parties who have to court factions of the far left because New York has a system called fusion voting, which encourages the power of third parties. So you can have a third party candidate endorse one of the major party candidates rather than run its own pick. And in the 19th century, you had the likes of William Jennings Bryan, whose agenda was shaped by the uh, the populist party. But even there, you see that it's really about third-party candidates influencing the main political party rather than fielding a viable candidate in and of itself. And so I think, yes, there are reasons why there seems to be appetite for a third party, but there are also real structural reasons why they don't succeed. Idris, have you got anything to add to that? There's a really excellent book on the subject by Lee Drutman called The Two-Party Doom Loop, which makes the case, as you can tell from the title, that uh, the structure of American democracy does encourage two parties and that this has malign consequences on, on the country as a whole. So it points to the fact that we have a first-past-the-post system uh, in, in the country, which you know the UK does as well, although it's, it seems to have encouraged, I think, a few more third parties than we have in America, which have basically been stable for the last 150 years. I think that book makes the most persuasive case that the structure of American democracy, the fact that 
there are single member districts, that there is just the startup cost for anyone attempting to do a third party run is so high that it keeps people locked into, as Charlotte points out, this very unhappy equilibrium where people are all sharing the same big tent with people that they don't really like very much. Well, I was going to name check that Drutman book as well. I think it's a great recommendation from Idris. I would suggest it to anyone who is really interested in this question. Chris asks if American politics would benefit from those sorts of reforms that Drutman talks about, ending single-member districts, first-past-the-post voting, instituting rank-choice voting, that sort of thing. I think the answer is unquestionably yes, but under current conditions, it will not happen. The two incumbent parties won't vote to give up power. They won't vote for reforms that make it easier for other parties to horn in. But it's worth thinking about how they could happen in the future. Yes, in the past, we've editorialized about ranked choice voting, which is when you elect candidates from a list. And we think that would help a bit with partisanship in America. Generally, though, I agree with you guys about the importance of electoral form. I'm also a little bit skeptical that there are kind of structural fixes for partisanship and that if you've got the structure right, American politics would be orderly and we'd see much more cooperation. But maybe I'm just too much of a pessimist. We'll be back to answer more of your questions in a moment. But first, we'd love it if you took out a subscription to The Economist. It's the only way to read, listen and watch all of our journalism. Economist.com US pod is the best link to subscribe. And you can find that in the notes for this episode. Now, back to the questions. Hi, this is Tayong from Baltimore. I'd like to hear more about the politics surrounding healthcare in the U.S. Thank you. So Taiyang would like to hear more about the politics of healthcare in America. And another listener, Dennis, emailed to say that he was interested in hearing about reforms to how people pay for healthcare in America. Charlotte, this used to be your patch, so I'm going to throw this one to you. Yeah, it's funny. If you think about the prominence of healthcare in the midterm elections, in the midterm elections in 2010, when I was covering healthcare you had these completely explosive town hall meetings where you'd have Democratic congressmen come up and try to defend Obamacare, and they'd be shouted down, and it was just very, very much front and center. In the midterm elections, you did have a lot of Democrats say that health care was very important to them, 79 percent, but it just wasn't the main issue in the midterms at all in, in the way that it was. But there are two things that I'd highlight, I guess, as relates to America's healthcare system at the moment. One is that Obamacare has not remotely gone away. To the contrary, there were record signups on health exchanges in the most recent enrollment period. And that's in part because there were enhanced subsidies for the healthcare plans that people can buy through those exchanges. The Medicaid expansion in Obamacare remains the, the expansion of federally provided healthcare insurance for poor people. That remains in 39 states. So Obamacare is still around. The thing that I would say is the most striking change, at least in my mind, is the increased pressure for the government and increased appetite for the government to negotiate drug prices. So you can remember back when Sarah Palin was John McCain's running mate in 2008, she warned against death panels and the idea that the government would be involved at all in deciding which medicines Americans would receive, whether there should be federal intervention in the pricing of those medicines. All that was kind of anathema in American culture. And that changed during Donald Trump's presidency. He was much more willing to talk about 
how drug prices were too high, how companies were ripping off Americans. And you've seen uh, both in the Inflation Reduction Act and in Biden's new proposal for Medicare that there's clearly more appetite for the negotiation of drug prices going forward. So I think that I would point to those two developments, both Obamacare sticking power and increased appetite for federal intervention in private markets, um, particularly in private drug markets, as a sign that some of these things that seemed so outrageous a decade ago in American healthcare have moved more into the mainstream and you see, I think, more lasting support for government meddling in what has largely been a privately run healthcare market. And John, one other way in which the politics of healthcare in America has changed over the past few years is that Donald Trump has changed the Republican Party's policy on this, right? The pre-Trump Republican Party was much more enthusiastic about cutting government spending on healthcare. The post or I guess present Trump Republican Party talks about that a lot less. They talk about it a lot less and Trump has tried to distinguish himself from Ron DeSantis by emphasizing that he would not cut Medicare or Social Security. He's made the Republican Party far more open to the idea of government playing a more interventionist role. One other thing, I hesitate to recommend another podcast on this podcast, but Charlotte occasionally appears on a business podcast called After Hours. There was a recent one in which she and the two hosts discussed the fading of the fee-for-service model for healthcare. So if you're interested in a much longer, wonkier discussion of healthcare and payments, I would recommend listening to that. That's nice. Thanks, John. Idris, do you see healthcare playing much of a role in next year's election, or is this question actually more settled than it has been for the past few cycles? I think it's a lot more settled. I think, like Charlotte pointed out, the Affordable Care Act is here to stay. I've been struck over the years that more and more Republican states that initially refused to expand Medicaid have done so. Uh, Idaho and Oklahoma did that after ballot referenda that pushed them to expand, and now that's the law of the land there. And I think we saw with the complete failure of the Trump administration to overturn the Affordable Care Act, which was their one of their opening legislative aims, that Republicans no longer have much interest in repealing Obamacare. They don't really have much of a health policy to set out in the first place. So the present state of health care is going to stay. Democrats obviously want to expand government's role in, in health care, which is already fairly extensive with Medicare and Medicaid. But Republicans, I think, would rather talk about cultural issues. And now we have a question from a familiar voice. Hi, I'm Leo. I live in Bombay and I work for an international current affairs weekly whose name starts with Econ and ends with Mist. Looking out from India, another large, diverse, polarized democracy given to occasional acts of self-harm, the idea that a country would destroy its own credit rating still seems utterly absurd. My question is, why don't we know when America hits its debt ceiling, what the X date is? Why is it all so uncertain? So Leo asks a very good question because I think much of the debate over the debt ceiling feels a bit incomprehensible to those inside America, not to mention those outside it. So the fundamental problem is that America spends more than it collects. So that might mean paying the salaries of employees like soldiers or paying for big public health programs like Medicaid or Medicare and on and on. And so it borrows money to pay for bills. And there's a maximum amount that the government can borrow. And the X date is the date at which the government reaches that level of debt to meet its financial obligations. And the reason why we don't know exactly when it hits that ceiling is because the answer depends on the government's cash flow 
in a given moment. And that's not entirely predictable. So there was a lot of attention in late April and early May about tax receipts, whether they were coming in at the level that was expected. If tax receipts were lower, that means that America could run out of cash sooner. If tax receipts were higher, that means America might have a bit more time. The government might have a bit more time. In this case, the tax receipts were lower. Earlier this week, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, told Congress that the government may not be able to meet its obligations beginning in June. But again, even then, there are all these different variables. It's not until June 15th that there is another influx of quarterly tax receipts. So there's this heightened risk in early June. So by this time next week, you could run into a real problem. That's when the risk is highest, according to the Bipartisan Policy Center. When it comes down to it, it's all about the government's cash flow. And that, in turn, depends on a bunch of different variables that are harder to predict than you'd think. Okay, and now I have a question to pose to you, John, which is from a listener named Linda in London. She wants to know how reliable presidential election polls are this far out from voting day. So we pay a lot of attention to the polls, but it is admittedly quite a long way away, the election of November 2024. How much attention should we pay to polls at this point in the election? How useful are polls in the primaries? Hmm, That's a good question. Should we take the primaries part of it first and then do the general election part? So in primaries, how useful are polls in the primaries? They're pretty useful because we don't have a lot else to go on besides going around and talking to voters and writing down their thoughts in our notebooks. But you have to treat them with some real caution. And that's because it's really expensive to poll single states. And within those single states, it's really, really expensive to poll primary voters. And so there's not a lot of high-quality polling we can go on. And then the other thing I'd say is that primaries and caucuses in particular are quite strange and momentum matters. And so, you know, polls are useful. They're the best guide we have. But you have to treat them with real caution, more caution than you'd treat polls for the general election, say, or something that we have a lot of data on, like presidential approval rating. So second part of the question, how reliable are presidential election polls this far out from voting day? Not very. You want to treat them with some real caution. I think until the beginning of next year, that's when we'll start to put together our election model once we know who the candidates are. And obviously, as you get closer to polling day, they get more accurate. But pollsters might say that the question is unfair. Polls are, they give us a sort of snapshot of what's going on now, right? So pollsters might say a poll right now is reliable. That doesn't mean that if it changes, you know, two weeks in response to something that happened in the news, it's unreliable. So the question really is how predictive they are. Not very predictive this far out. That said, were the candidates to be Joe Biden and Donald Trump, which looks like the likeliest outcome at the moment, then we have quite a lot of polling data on both of those already. And so were those two the candidates, the polls, I think, would be a little more predictive earlier than would normally be the case, just because voters know who these two people are. John, I think that's a really useful way to think about polls. They are a snapshot in time, not necessarily a prediction of any specific outcome. Obviously, Donald Trump holds a commanding lead in the Republican primary, but that didn't stop Ron DeSantis from throwing his hat into the ring this week. It hasn't stopped Nikki Haley or Tim Scott from throwing their hats into the ring. We know from 2008, John McCain and Barack Obama started those races way back in the polls and eventually came forward to clinch their party's nomination. So while it looks right now as though Donald Trump is inevitable, and if I were putting money on an outcome, I would bet on him versus the field, 
it doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to win. Okay, next question. We've heard from Idaho, from Nigeria, from Australia, from Baltimore, and next we're going to Germany. Hi, John, Charlotte, Idris, and John. My name is Thomas, and I listen from Berlin, Germany. Donald Trump has said that if elected in 2024, he would end the war in Ukraine. Do you believe that Trump is tapping into a wildly held view in the electorate that the US aid to Ukraine should be terminated or at least significantly decreased? And do you believe that this will become a top issue for the presidential campaign? Thank you so much for taking on my question and this great podcast. And just to add to Tomas's question, earlier this year, Ron DeSantis expressed some skepticism about America's support for Ukraine. We wrote a leader at the time saying he was dead wrong on that one in an edition of The Economist. Idris, what do you think on this question? I don't think it will be a top issue in the presidential campaign in the general election because Americans don't usually bother with foreign policy unless there are troops involved. And there doesn't seem to be any chance of that happening soon. But I think that what uh, you will see in the Republican primary is a shared sense of isolationism. And you see that already among Ron DeSantis and among Donald Trump who are playing into this game for the primary vote where that sense that we're wasting money that we could be spending here is very strong. It's one that Tucker Carlson tried very hard to encourage when he was still occupying his uh, daily slot on Fox News. Now that he's departed, I don't think that sentiment is going to go anywhere. You see some people in Congress like J.D. Vance who say things like America needs to protect its own and secure its border before it bothers with Ukraine. I think that there will be relative unanimity among the Republican field on that point. There might be some people like Nikki Haley or Mike Pence who try to sketch out a more traditional hawkish approach, but I don't think it'll be one that dominates the election year ahead. John, would you agree with that? I think Idris is right that this probably won't be a huge issue in the 2024 election for the reasons he outlined. Tomas asked whether we think USA to Ukraine should be terminated or decreased as an institution we think it shouldn't, and as a person, I think it absolutely should not. The one point of distinction I'd make between Trump and DeSantis is that Trump's isolationist instincts seem to be real, right? He questioned the utility of NATO going way, way back. DeSantis, I'm not so sure about. He was quite hawkish when he was in Congress. I don't know whether he actually means what he says or whether he's just making a play for primary votes. I would be very worried about American foreign policy and the direction it would take in a second Trump term, I'm somewhat less worried about the direction it would take in a DeSantis term because I suspect he's probably somewhat insincere when it comes to his isolationist views. I think one thing to keep in mind is the damage to America's credibility on the world stage over the past 20 years. You had America's involvement in Iraq under George W. Bush. You had Donald Trump seeming to shun the institutions that had been uh, American-led for the entire post-war era. And coming out of the war in Ukraine, you have, as we've covered extensively, an increasingly confident China trying to assert itself on the world stage and assert itself as an alternative to an American-led world order. And one of the things that I think other countries and other leaders in other countries think when they look at America's electoral system is that it's fundamentally volatile. You'll have someone like Joe Biden, who clearly is committed to international institutions, followed by potentially someone who's not remotely committed to those institutions or who pursues a very different foreign policy agenda. And so both for Ukraine, the decisions of the next president are deeply important, but also for countries around the world thinking about how reliable America is as a partner, what type of new world order we might be seeing going forward. Is it going to be one that is American-led? Is it a multipolar world led by China in alliance with Russia and other countries? 
So I think it is really an important moment. I hate when commentators use the word moment as if every moment in time is somehow distinct and special. But America's credibility really does hang in the balance. And I think that the positioning of the next Republican candidate in particular will be hugely important to that. Yeah, I agree with that. And one of the points we made in the leader about Ron DeSantis is that foreign policy is sort of unlike domestic policy. In domestic policy, you can say one thing in the primary and then entirely change your view in the general election once you've won your party's trust. Foreign policy doesn't really work like that. I'm sure the comments that Ron DeSantis made will have been noticed in Moscow. And from Russia's point of view, they can now you know, try and wait out this war and assume that after 2024, there's a good chance that there's a president in America who's much less supportive of Ukraine. And that obviously influences their decision to bring this war to an end or not. Okay, we'll be back in a moment. Here's some more of your questions. And then we'll have a bumper quiz. We'd also like to ask you, our listeners, some questions. We're always trying to make our podcast better here at The Economist, and it would really help us out to know what you think of them. So please fill out our listener survey, if you have the time, at economist.com slash uspodsurvey. That's economist.com slash uspodsurvey. It should only take you a few minutes, and you'll find that link in the notes for this episode. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, but I still have a couple more questions for you, John, Charlotte and Idris. So take a sip of water, have some coffee. We have another listener in Germany who has a slightly more personal question. Hey, my name is Franzi and I live in Germany. I would like to know what sparked your interest in politics and why you became journalists. Thank you for the podcast. I love listening to it. I'm looking forward to the answers to these because I don't actually know. I'm too British, I think, ever to have asked you guys a question like this. So... John, should we start with you? Why did you become a journalist and why did you become interested in politics in the first place? The interest in politics, I think, stems from my growing up in Washington, D.C., where national politics were sort of like what sports are in other cities. It's You talked about it, you sort of knew about it, they were always there, and uh, they were always sort of inherently interesting to me. As for why I became a journalist, I really just love meeting people and asking questions and learning things. And this is a job that lets you do all of that. We get paid to be curious and nosy. And I really think there is no better or more fun thing to do in the world than to be curious and nosy. Idris, same question to you. Why did you become a journalist rather than just continue as a professional quiz master? Uh, well, there's even less money in quiz mastering than uh, <laughs> than journalism writ large, unless you're Ken Jennings. Uh, I think it starts with my dad has always been incredibly interested in the news. I remember when I was a kid, I would sit with him and he would read uh, the New York Times and I'd read it with him. And, you know, I remember back in those days, Maureen Dowd's headshot had this shock of bright red hair. Uh, so I always would read her columns with, with my dad. And so we always were very interested in talking about the news together. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun to be able to, to write about that now. And Charlotte, how about you? 
If I could have guessed the formative columnist in Idris's childhood, I really would not have thought of Maureen Dad. That is fascinating to me. I still love her, by the way. Interesting. All right. New layers of young Idris Cullen. Why did I become a journalist? My answer is more close to John Fasman's, which is that the sort of two tasks of being a journalist, reporting and then writing, are two things that I find hard, challenging, constantly engaging fun. The idea that every week you can learn more things about how the world is changing in real time and go to places and ask people questions. And then I love the task of writing. I love the task of sitting down and trying to figure out how to explain things in a compelling way. So that's why I love being a journalist. But John, how about you? I would share what you guys said about just how constantly fascinating it is to report and and try and find the answers to questions. And also, I really enjoy writing. It's hard. But for me, it clarifies how I think about things. And then I guess I have a slightly more self-important or self-aggrandizing answer, which is that before I was a journalist, I started off doing a history PhD and I was looking at the French Revolution in the 1790s and the terror. I spent a year basically living in a library in Paris, which had its upsides. But looking at the mass murders and public executions in the 1790s in France, I had this horrible feeling that something really bad might be happening in my country or country I cared about and I might not notice because I'd just be buried under a weight of papers in a library. And I decided to kind of get out that library and get more into the world. And one of my core beliefs is that politics really, really matters. I mean, we try not to cover it as entertainment or as sports on checks and balance. We do a decent amount of policy. But yeah, it really, really matters. And I, I still believe that. And that's why political journalism has always been particularly attractive to me. Okay, we had a few questions about how we make the podcast, how the planning and the production works and all that kind of thing. Michael was one listener who asked about this. Hello, my name is Michael, and I live in Austin, Texas. I wanted to know how the Checks and Balance team determines what story to focus on and what a regular week looks like for the team. How do we decide what to cover on Checks and Balance? Well, we really follow our interests, which we hope match our listeners' interests. We try and not do too much kind of breathless coverage of the thing that's top in the news cycle at the moment. We try and pick issues that we think really matter in America and maybe issues where you know, we think that lots of other people are maybe getting something important wrong. And then we think, well, do we have something that we want to say about this that's meaningful? And do we have some reporting or some expertise we can bring to bear? Or is there someone we think our audience would particularly like to hear from? And then we also try and give you guys a fairly varied diet. So it's not the same every week. And I would just add that our expert producer, who we give credit to at the end of each episode, but we have a producer named Harriet Noble, who is really running the show behind the scenes. And she has a very good vision. And we talk with her each week about what we think would be interesting. She tells us what she thinks would be interesting. So it's a very collaborative process. I'd say it's very collaborative between the four of us. Harriet, Stevie Hertz, who's another one of the brains behind the scenes and does some fantastic reporting for us, including looking into the opioid crisis, which listeners may remember hearing earlier this year. And then there's also Nico Rofast, our sound engineer. The history packages, he mixes those, and that's why they sound so wonderful. And finally, we have a question about the quiz, which comes from Italy. Hi, this is Francesco from Italy. I'd like to know if there is a leaderboard keeping everyone's quiz score. And I know it will sound cheesy, but I never miss an episode. And part of the reason 
is the quiz itself. Thank you guys for your work. I think if we were to be honest, Francesco, it would be like measuring snow in the Sahara. What's the point? Although if we were to measure it, as an occasional visitor, I would encourage us to rank by questions answered correctly as a share of total questions asked rather than by absolute numbers. I think that's very important. I mean, is it? It's crucial. I don't think it would change the outcome that much. We can be clear-eyed about this (laughs) in our analysis. Francesco, I appreciate the question, but moving on. Okay, the quiz this week is about presidential press conferences, which in some ways are the White House equivalent of our Q&A episode. There are five questions because it's so exciting to have all three of you on the podcast at the same time. And I expect this to be pretty chaotic because it's chaotic just with two people on the quiz. So as ever, there are no holds barred. Just butt in whenever you want. Question one, which president held the first ever televised press conference? Eisenhower? I'm going to say Kennedy. Truman? It was Dwight Eisenhower in January 1955, a point to Mr. Mm. Fassman. As it began, Eisenhower said, well, I see we're trying a new experiment this morning. I hope that doesn't prove to be a disturbing influence. It was. Um, I think it was, yes. Spoiler alert. Yeah, Spoiler it really alert. was. <laughs> Spoiler alert, it really was. Question two. Eisenhower's press conferences were pre-recorded, allowing his press team the option of editing the footage. But which president held the first ever live televised press conference? That had to be Kennedy. Maybe Nixon? No, I think it'd be later, is my guess. Maybe LBJ. So we've had Kennedy, Nixon, LBJ. Any others? So it's not one of those three. No, no, it was, in fact, Kennedy. Fatsman, again, was very quick. It was JFK a few days after his inauguration in 1961. I guess having done so well in the televised TV debate with Nixon, he he was keen to perform in front of the cameras again. So two points to Mr. Fatsman. It's becoming a rout. Question three. In the past hundred years, which president waited the longest between taking office and holding his first solo press conference? Biden? Could be Biden. Yeah, that sounds right. The answer is Joe Biden, unanimous. Question four. How many days after his inauguration did he eventually hold that conference? I'll give you a point, or rather Harriet will, if you're within three days. 30 days? Trivia. Um, it's great trivia. I'm going to say 50. It's Price is Right rules. Uh, no, it's not, because you oh, just yeah, said three, within three days. I'm rewriting the rules as I go. <laughs> you don't precise we are all about these rules for these quizzes. It's ridiculous. Okay, uh, I'll say 61. It was 64 days. That's a point for Charlotte. Oh! Well Does that deserve a woot? I just had a squeal. Okay. I don't know. I think it deserves a woot. Yeah. 64 days. Uh, he held it on March 25th, 2021. Question five, the final question. <sighs> Deep breaths. On August 28th, 2014, Barack Obama controversially did what? At a White House press conference. Wore a tan suit. He wore a tan suit, yep. Idris just got there first, I think. He wore a tan, or Brits might say beige, suit. Uh, This was met with some outrage by Republicans, with one congressman calling it a metaphor for his lack of seriousness, which is just hilarious. I love it. And saying that the president looked like he was on his way to a party at the Hamptons, which maybe he was. Actually, I don't think he was. One commentator on Twitter called it the audacity of taupe, which was good. (laughs) (laughs) That is good. Well, I've no idea what the scores are from that round, but perhaps Francesco will tell us. 
Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who sent in questions for this episode. There were a lot more that we couldn't use, and perhaps we'll use them in a future episode. Please do keep the questions coming. Our email address is podcasts at economist.com. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble, and Nicola Rofast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can now explore our whole archive at economist.com slash checkspod. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance for you next week. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.